Jamie. Jonathan. How's it going, man? New audio gear. Good. 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 Yes. New audio gear. Hopefully I'm coming across the airwaves much clearer now. Although I have a little bit of a tickly throat, so I'm not sure if that'll uh, offset the microphone that I've invested in. One thing is for sure is that I now sound terrible in comparison, so thanks for that. Well, you can't have everything. I mean, you've got the good looks, and I've got the the sexy voice now. The microphone. Yeah, the microphone does it, does it really. So yeah, I invested in the Shure SM7B uh, with a little USB interface and a cloud lifter, which uh, kind of, it's also known as a mic activator that lifts the, the decibels. Um, kind of just boosts the signal, which is good. Um, so yeah, it does sound a lot clearer. I've recorded a few videos with this mic now and uh, pretty impressed with it so far, actually. Um, I'm using it for everything. I'm using the USB interface for everything as well. So my headphones uh, have a cable and a little converter that goes into uh, the USB interface and it just sounds much better, all the audio coming in and out of my Mac now. So I'm pretty pleased with that. It wasn't cheap either, um, but I thought as I go on to do uh, more recordings and voice on videos, I thought, why not invest in some new gear um, and kind of playing back some of the episodes as well. There was quite a lot of background noise or kind of a, a hiss or a hum coming from the mic I had before. Um, and that wasn't cheap either, but I thought I would just invest in some better equipment. So it also helps the output, is that right? Yeah, so the microphone itself, uh, the signal it uh, outputs needs to be kind of boosted um, before it comes into... Because it's a... It's a, um, it needs a SLR cable, and then obviously that needs a USB interface, so the signal needs to be boosted before it can be kind of uh, input to my um, Mac to record. So right now it's kind of, there's an SLR cable going, uh, an XLR, sorry, not an SLR, um, an XLR cable leaving the mic into a cloud lifter, leaves the cloud lifter into an interface, and the interface through USB-C to the Mac. Um, this is quite a lot of you know i'd probably say this is quite a simple setup as well i've seen people have these compressors that can compress their voice it's kind of a like a rack mountable thing but this is just something small that sits on my desk so but is it is it is it benefiting the the output to your headphones as i understand it as well the cloud lifter yeah um it is clearer so the usb interface i use just for general mac so if i'm listening to spotify i will just have my headphones plugged in to the usb interface right so that obviously that's a bit nicer as well i don't know if that's just psychological placebo effect yeah yeah well i'm probably gonna have to upgrade mine now thanks for that yeah well you've been you've been buying some stuff as well haven't you but more on the video side what have you been doing there yeah so i bought a mirrorless uh camera well I bought a mirrorless camera. The first means everything bought a mirrorless camera. We are trying to produce some video content, uh, or are producing some video content, albeit pretty badly. Yeah, we bought a mirrorless uh, Sony A6400. Yeah, so we're filming some content, and I can use that. Uh, I, I intend to use that as my primary camera device 
to, to, to create some content so I need to buy myself a, a capture card essentially or a, a, a USB input which can interface with the camera via HDMI so bought a camera don't really know what I'm doing with it but that's part of the fun right learning new tools and toys yeah absolutely I've got very little experience with with audio setup yeah I've got kind of people in the family who teach music for a living and know kind of the gear um and have an idea but I have all the gear and no idea so it's uh it's quite a a fun learning experience so far kind of figuring out stuff um and just playing with some audio editing software again still have no idea I could spend hours on YouTube watching videos of people kind of walking stuff through but um you kind of dive into the realms of learning music theory and I'm like yeah I don't want to look at it too that much it's pretty deep sound a bit better so (laughs) yeah so hopefully it pays off and the audio quality is a lot better on some of the videos that I do um and and certainly hopefully buying that camera that you have that helps you know than just you know recording the content you want to create is better than just using a GoPro or uh, your iPhone because you got some lights as well right yeah we bought some um some LED standing lights so I have a friend that's in the video he produces our current video content for first means everything and told him about a camera and I was like what's the next best or what are the best accessories we can invest in that are affordable but will give us the most you know return kind of thing and he said lighting um straight away get some good lights because you're never always gonna have good natural light very rarely you'll have good natural light so um yeah we we spent it, to be fair they weren't even that expensive they were I think it was about 150 pounds we got two kind of uh, standing LED lights we can adjust the uh, temperature of them we can adjust the um, the brightness of them so they're actually quite good um, yeah and I mean I've, we we filmed something over the weekend with that I'll put the link in the notes and you can you can see how how much of a difference the lighting made yeah I remember back to when we were recording some videos and we had we had some freestanding lights there weren't LEDs so the probably the quality wasn't that great but you could certainly see in the right environment with some lighting it kind of makes all the difference yeah so i can only imagine with the lighting that you've invested in the quality it'll you know help the overall quality even more one thing that's been on my mind this week um i've kind of just been reflecting on like obviously some of the work that i've been doing lately and um i've been kind of speaking to a few people who are just getting into programming um and people who have been been into programming for a while but um delving into new areas and i was kind of just reflecting on how i got into programming and uh some of the journeys i see today of people doing boot camps and um learning while i've got a full-time job and a family and everything um and i was quite fortunate to kind of learn as uh you know as i was growing up um but yeah i was kind of just curious to kind of hear your story as well i'm happy to share kind of mine where i started but where did it all start for you what did that look like in hindsight it probably looked terrible some background on me i'm predominantly self-taught i don't have a formal cs degree i do have some education in this space however the merits of that have not really helped me get to where i am today i've not had a job interview process or an application process that has been dependent on a computer science degree and i think that's kind of a trend that's going throughout the industry now Um, as you say as a lot more developers are coming becoming self-taught because of 
the resources available. So I'm I'm very much in that self-taught category. I think originally I was probably around 14, 15, um, dabbling with Photoshop and creating Photoshop uh, templates and HTML layouts, kind of in that, you know, that static environment, uh, extracting those assets, putting those together in with HTML, some CSS, probably horribly. Um, then left school, got a couple of jobs. I left school with not much in terms of an education or, well, qualifications. So I left school, took up a couple of jobs, realised I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing. I wasn't really getting any satisfaction from that. So started to pick HTML, CSS back up, uh, jQuery. This is back in 2010. So jQuery was kind of predominantly JavaScript on the front end then. And I enrolled at Newcastle College and did a uh, a foundation degree so it was a two-year foundation degree that was my foot into the industry the local industry got a job at a local uh, web agency kind of working with uh, magento css mostly the, the rest is history kind of worked at another couple of agencies but predominantly worked in startups or with startups since 2013 and then, yeah and ever since then i've just kind of i've always had this urge to strive to improve myself to be a better engineer so i'm always learning take any opportunity i can to improve my skill set uh grow my skill set so yeah i don't have uh, a formal background but it hasn't really i haven't really needed one so far i don't yeah, yeah. do you think the background because i'm self-taught as well and obviously everything you've just said do you think it helps being self-taught and all the kind of challenges you've had to overcome it makes it it's kind of put you on this path of uh primarily front-end development but also you have a passion for sharing that with others whether it be tips on twitter and tweets and tutorials guides video content whatever it be do you think it's kind of put you that's helped somewhat to that i think learning in public um you know there's there's a big movement around that learning in public um uh, that definitely empowers you, not only you but also empowers you know your following if you have one so i think there are merits to that approach um because it shows that you have the kind of drive intuitiveness to kind of go out and identify skills that are needed to succeed in this industry and actually go ahead and learn them and develop them and harness those into to apply into an actual job in software engineering or, or or web development or whatever so yeah i'd say the merits of being self-taught definitely show traits of people who are generally successful you know they're hard work and they have a drive they are fundamentally smart enough to to pick up concepts and, and stick at it and it's an interesting story because it's kind of it's kind of similar to me i started i think maybe when i was 11 or 12 years old so a bit earlier but that was really off the back of my granddad buying me a pc so i think i was like 11 years old at the time and i got this pc home and like turned it on obviously computers back then were very very new my school hadn't had one yet so i had friends coming around on an evening to kind of use the computer and it was so weird because we didn't have the internet and and like most of my life is now internet based so it's like what did you even do but i very quickly picked up html back then i was like how can we just create some content 
or create something on the screen and kind of look to uh, create HTML. And back then it was kind of WYSIWYG editors. I remember the browser was Netscape Navigator, but they had this whole Netscape web builder thing. And I created a website for the school and showed the teachers not long after I got this PC. And I think from there, it was kind of just showing someone else you can create this thing that you've built and have it live somewhere. Uh, was It was kind of a turning point for me. I kind of realized, well, maybe this could be... I really enjoyed it, so I thought maybe this could be where I form a career almost. Obviously, didn't expect I would be where I am today, um, kind of just doing this full-time remotely. You know, if that was even possible, but it was interesting. It was fun. That's kind of where it all started for me, and then obviously the years went on, the time went by, working on just learning PHP. Uh, there was frameworks like CodeIgniter, which I'm sure you've heard of, and there was, there was a lot of content that I used to kind of just consume on a daily basis. I remember when I was very young, 15, 16, just reading PHP, like trying to understand what other people had wrote and mm. trying to understand how it all fit together. Um, kind of went all the way through school, kind of uh, got got decent grades, did my A-levels, dropped out of one A-level because I just spent so much time on my computer just coding and making stuff. Um, and then kind of the school asked me to make a website for them and then I got another one. So I spent all my free time when I should have been studying making websites and I kind of just knew at that point like this is going to be something I want to kind of do for the foreseeable future um, because I had a huge interest in it so yeah then kind of left school all my friends had went to university and I was kind of just sat at home making websites and I was like okay what do I do now Um, and I kind of looked around and I myself enrolled on a course at Newcastle College and that was a two-year foundation degree. I first applied at Northumbria. So I, I, I applied for Northumbria clearing, got an got a, a unconditional offer at Northumbria. It was a web design. The first thing we did was Flash. And I went, yeah, this is not going to be around for much longer. Yeah. Um, there was already a huge movement with HTML. So I kind of just uh, ditched out of that very quickly and then enrolled on this course at Newcastle College, which is a web design or a web development and management course rather. Uh, met a few friends on there and uh, I think from there kind of just it all just happened from that point it's weird now because back then I didn't understand JavaScript at all I mean I'm talking when I'm like 21 22 years old JavaScript was just this crazy thing that I just found really confusing um, even I just found it time consuming like having to control all the what today I would call the state control and state on the page back then with jQuery and all of the the selectors you had to write, it just fe- it felt re- uh, very time-consuming. It wasn't something I thought was necessary, so I didn't really spend much time. And funny enough, now I spend more time writing JavaScript than anything else. So it's, uh, it's funny how the world pans out. It's interesting that you mentioned the curriculum of um, courses, especially in the Northeast. East, really attest to other establishments around the country and around the world but especially in the northeast um i feel like the curriculum of certain establishments the computer science curriculum was quite outdated so they were learning skills that weren't really applicable in the in the industry or were outdated weren't really relevant anymore and that was one thing that kind of drew me to the newcastle college foundation degree was that the curriculum was relevant. It was uh, kind of designed with the industry in mind, i.e. to get you into a job rather than just saying, here is your computer science degree or 
So yeah, I think it's, and that's something as well I've encountered with hiring people, coming across people who had, by all means, were smart um, and had a computer science degree, but did not have uh, applicable skills that were required in the market. Um, you know, so yeah, it's interesting, um, and I think that's why there's a big movement now for for people to kind of be self-taught. The internet, you know, empowers people to be able to do that. Um, rather than having to spend three, four years, however many thousands um, educating themselves at a university when they can quite easily get themselves a job um, on a on a bootstrap course or buying a, a Kenzie Dodds course or buying a Wes Boz course. Or... So you've been working on a, I've seen on GitHub, you've been working on a auth implementation for First Means Everything for I'm guessing uh, subscribers to the programming and uh, you know everything else we mentioned on the previous episode how's that going uh, what you know auth's a, auth can be a pain um, it's not a nice experience I guess that's why there's a hundred different solutions that try and solve the problem but ultimately you trade all that away for flexibility so yeah it looks like I wished I abstracted this to auth zero or another provider <laughs> So yeah, I'm adding uh, authentication layer to an existing Gatsby site. Um, so it's statically rendered, server-side rendered. Um, basically, I'm trying to introduce um, authentication state into the app so that uh, users can sign in, uh, register, sign in, and then actually access uh, protected content uh, that will be behind a subscription paywall. So the first phase of that is utilizing an existing GraphQL API that I have. So we have the mutations already to um, create an account to authenticate those accounts. That authentication mutation will return a JSON web token. And this is where it gets quite tricky. Um, there's a lot of material around this. I won't bore you with the details, but I'll put something in the show notes a good a good reading reference regarding all this stuff but essentially storing uh, a json web token because essentially um it's encrypted you can encrypt whatever you want in the json web token but it can easily be intercepted if you're storing that in local storage you're prone to xss attacks um even if you store it in a cookie you're still prone to attacks as well so the thinking now with behind the best approach to take now is to actually just store these tokens in application state, i.e. in memory. So put that in your React uh, context provider and then all well and good until somebody refreshes a page and you've lost your application's, application's memory because you haven't stored it in local storage or a cookie, so on, so on. So the thinking is that you store the token which is passed in the headers of your requests in context, in my case, and then you actually have a refresh token, which is stored in a cookie. And basically what that means is when your JSON web token expires after 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a short period of time, um, in this case, Apollo Client will, you'll get a 401 response from your API, Apollo Client will handle that and then actually use the cookie to hit a refresh endpoint to then give you a new token to store again in application memory. So 
the idea is that it's fluent experience for the user. They will never be logged out unless they explicitly log out. Um, I they come back to your session. They have a refresh token, which do expire roughly seven to ten days. That refresh cookie. So you come back to your the application. The refresh uh, token will be refreshed. You will get a new JSON Web Token access token that's stored in state. So it's a it's designed to be a kind of um, as I said, a, a, an uninterrupted flow for the user. I, their session is not disrupted, but without actually the security compromises that you might have made in the past. Um, I've stored JSON Web Tokens in local storage in the past. Um, and whilst I'm not particularly, you know, this, I will not be the target of um, any malicious attacks, I don't imagine, but we, you know, we are storing some sensitive data uh, with our users, with our JSON Web Tokens. So it's always best to follow best practices. Yeah. And also it's just, again, come back to what we're talking about, a good learning curve, a good learning experience to implement these things the correct way. JSON Web Tokens are something which I've used. And I, I kind of now store them in cookies. It's obviously a lot more friendly when you're dealing with serverless functions and things. But yeah, they can still be accepted. And I'm really interested to kind of see where you take this refresh token flow with uh with this project and interesting to see what the outcome looks like um i have toyed with that previously using axios because axios has a uh a life cycle method where you can intercept uh responses so if you get a 401 you can then make another subsequent request to refresh the token and update that um but it's kind of a few a few er- you know there's a few areas with creating that flow that kind of need to be well thought out which i'm sure you're doing and all of this is open source for people to check out as well. Yeah, just to come back to what you said about Axios there. So Apollo, if you use Apollo client, they have um, this whole this whole kind of concept of links uh, when you're instantiating your client. And within that, you can add a link, an Apollo link. There's a library for this that will handle token refreshes. If you if Apollo client receives a 401 response, i.e. unauthenticated or unauthorized, I, your JSON web token has expired, then it will fire off a request with your refresh to your refresh endpoint to get you a new token. So I've not gotten to that step yet, but Apollo client should get me what I need there. Um, at the moment, I'm the moment I'm mostly working on UI because I'm kind of deferring this part of stuff to later because I don't really want to think about it. <laughs> so I've just been playing around with Apollo client UI, Apollo uh, using the React, their React hooks in the in the new client beta. So got mutation set up, added a um, auth context. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, there's going to be some work needed on the GraphQL API as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I am, as you said, I'm trying to, this is all open source. Uh, I'm trying to be quite transparent with what I'm working on via GitHub projects. Um, so I'm adding issues there, all the pull requests are, are associated to issues, et cetera, et cetera. Just wish I had more time. Wish I had more time. Pretty excited to see where you take that. How is CardQL coming on? Uh, you sent me a message saying you'd been working with Stripe Connect. Yeah, I was working with Stripe Connect for the past few weeks. I've been spending a few evenings, uh, just spending some kind of downtime working on the whole auth flow. Um, 
I kind of deferred Oath till last, and I have, I now have this flow, which is, user comes to the site, they can register to create an account, that goes off to a, uh, a GraphQL API, um, it's called a system API that I've created, and that manages maintaining users and their store. So once you create a user, essentially the initial flow is just you create a user and that is the store. And then you kind of get your API keys generated once you're logged in. And then you will get access to uh, things like your settings. And inside of the settings area, there's this button to connect to Stripe. If you wish to enable the CardQL payments API, then you have to connect to Stripe. And that goes away to Stripe Connect. Uh, I'm using this the Express flow, which is just a very uh, Express uh connect flow and that kind of just asks for basic business information and if you already have a stripe account you can easily just log in and grant access to cardql to read your data and then to create payments on your behalf so what that does is it goes to stripe and then stripe return a uh, authorization code and then i have to make another request uh simple auth to stripe again with our auth code to say okay give me the give me uh, a token that i can use give me uh information about you and then i'm able to store the stripe user id to the user profile on my database and then i'm able to use that um whenever they make mutations later on so if somebody wishes to create a, a stripe payment intent they can call a mutation called create stripe payment intent and then that looks at the context um of the request and inside that request is it is a jwt coming through and then obviously that decrypted has a uh, an ID that belongs to the user, and then able to look up user details, look at Stripe, and then kind of instantiate the Stripe client with the connected account ID. And then I'm able to process, you know, anything on that Stripe account as you, as it was just your own, um, because I've granted that access earlier on. So that was quite tricky to do because with Next.js, uh, before 9.3, you didn't have any way to kind of just run this on the server. So I didn't want to make requests to my database or instantiate my database connection on the client and make these requests because it just, you know, that's just going to open a, a can of worms. So fortunately, last night, uh, the Next.js team had released 9.3, which has in get server side props now. And that nice. allows you to kind of make requests on the server only. So I'm now able to, when Stripe uh, returns a callback and it goes to my URL, that's a, that's a Next.js page. And then I'm able to, in that special handler now, make a call to my database, make a call to Stripe, and then do what I need to do. Send the user to an onboarding screen or send them just to the, the page. Um, so it's been quite an interesting learning curve and there's been quite a big blocker. Um, prior to this, I was using that unstable lifecycle for a while. Um, but I kept running into issues with context and server rendering. That seems to be all figured out now. So last night I was kind of happy to just enable that uh, new version and start using it straight away. So pretty excited about that specifically. Yeah, I'm excited to see where you take CarQL. You've been badgering me to get involved. Um, you not actually told me what you need help with, but um, I, you know I've got a project, as I've told you, that I'm, I need a card solution for, so kind of happy to beta test uh dog food with with card qr so yeah i mean yeah yeah absolutely it's certainly i've left it i left it at a point end of last year where it was just ready you know there was nothing really more to do carts and checkout just worked 
you can add items to a cart you can update them and then you can check out and you get an object there's no authentication required to do that at all the only thing that i want to kind of enforce authentication around is the whole payment side there's no real way to kind of do that client side only um so i kind of have to have the stripe account data stored somewhere to some user object that i can use and and pass along the, with the request so yeah uh feel free to check it out as it is and anyone else that's listening if you want to check that out it's at carql.com uh the graph graphql or actually it is api.carql.com is the graphql endpoint so there's docs in there to read um and i'm also working on an open source store that is built on gatsby that has all of that inside and it's using the new apollo stuff so i'm working on quite a few different things to kind of just hopefully publish and release this uh next month or so um the pay the whole payments flow that's kind of the next big step for it and having a, a user area where users can log in and maybe see their current carts or abandoned carts or their checkouts at least um and configure their webhooks so you know that's a whole different thing which we'll talk about on a different episode um but i've been kind of playing with uh, mongodb atlas and i know you have as well uh, with their whole triggers and stuff maybe you know, maybe we can dedicate an episode to talking about that um but yeah there's so much there's so much stuff once you begin to kind of think of ideas this idea can then sparks off 10 different to-dos and uh before you know it, it gets out of hand so right now focus on getting auth working and payments then i can kind of uh, move to the next feature yeah mongodb atlas uh stitch and triggers would be good subject because I'm not seeing much content around that um but it seems like it's something quite could be quite an integral part of a, a SaaS to me um so yeah we could talk about those one thing i noticed you've also shipped recently was a uh a gatsby plugin for transistor fm where we host our podcast so for someone that uh doesn't finish things i finished the plugin <laughs> um i quickly had this idea how can we create a website for maybe it's not this podcast but some other podcasts and another hypothetical podcast another hypothetical podcast that we may or may not be recording um but yeah i kind of wanted to put this concept together that was based on transistor transistor doesn't have an api though um there is one coming i've been told but right now there is no api so what do we do well first of all the first thing i even thought about doing was scraping the transistor page they give you and then pulling out the data from that. I then thought, well, we have an RSS feed. Maybe I'm able to scrape the RSS feed. So essentially that's what I ended up doing. Created uh, a very small Gatsby plugin that makes a request to the endpoint gets that you provide it in the options when you instantiate the plugin. And then that is then passed with uh, an NPM package called RSS parser, I think. And then I'm able to kind of uh, transform that to JSON. Haven't done much work in just making sure the JSON doesn't break, so it's all formatted correctly. That's kind of a an issue. Um, Payors welcome um, to you know make it a bit more secure. But right now it creates all the Gatsby nodes, so you're able to install this plugin and create a website that has your podcast, uh, your Transistor FM podcast, on uh, a Gatsby site and have it all statically built, and then have the audio play. Uh, from transistor and obviously you get all the analytics that they provide you as well so it's quite nice i can have my own website that uh, plays transistor content and i also have the audio um all of the analytics on the audio plays as well that's nice because transistor is a really nice service i'm we're using them for not only this podcast i'm using them for the first means everything podcast 
and also a potentially hypothetical unnamed podcast that we might have been recording or might not have been recording. Anyway, it's a nice service, but they don't currently have an API. And being the tinkerer that I am and the developer that I am, I wasn't happy with just using either their self-hosted podcast pages they provide you with or dumping an iframe into an existing website. didn't feel very nice. So I wanted to use their API that didn't exist with some dev tools to kind of build my own UI, have the podcast players, but that wasn't possible. And I just didn't think of using the RSS feed and you did. And I'm glad you did because um, it's unlocked me to now include those podcasts in other places that weren't previously possible. As you said, you know, you, you kind of said it was easy to get up and running. I think that's a kind of a testament to uh, the Gatsby ecosystem and uh, the APIs available for building plugins and, and sourcing data. And actually somebody tweeted me, I think not long after I kind of, uh, someone replied to a tweet not long after I tweeted this plugin out saying, oh, how, well, how simple is it to create plugins? And, you know, I was scared to create a plugin because it seemed a bit difficult or um, there's kind of hurdles in the way. In actual fact, once you kind of just have your kind of repo, you have all the kind of the boilerplates set up, you can just write regular code as if it was a um, a Gatsby site and like you were doing in a normal Gatsby lifecycle method, but it's now abstracted to this function that others can use. Um, once you kind of get over that boilerplate, and I'll leave a link in the notes to um, some good tutorials around that, um, it is relatively straightforward. Uh, f- from that point, it's just kind of figuring out to actually program in the function or the plugin that you want to create. It's kind of the hard, That's kind of the hardest bit. Um, actually publishing and you know publishing to Gatsby as directory you specify some keywords in the npm package and publish it to npm and Bob's your uncle it's 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 online for this to use publishing to npm itself is a task at least automating publishing with packages like these which you need to do semantic versioning yeah you got me into semantic version um, which is nice to use and I haven't enabled it in this repo and I created an issue. And obviously you reply to that issue saying, instead of using Circle, why not try GitHub Actions? And that's just something, one, I didn't think about. And two, I've not, I don't have any experience. So that could be a a good thing that maybe you do PR and then I can learn from your PR. <laughs> PR is welcome. What else? Is, I think that's about it. You've been traveling on a stag do, a last scene on your Instagrams. We went to Dusseldorf. This was almost... 10 days ago now? Yeah. Um, Dusseldorf in Germany. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting experience. Um, not somewhere I'd ever rush back to, but it was good for a good friend. Um, looking forward to the wedding. Thankfully, my travel plans weren't interrupted by coronavirus, but... Yeah, yeah, it seems to have knocked on certainly a lot of conferences as well. Um, there's a lot of conferences now being cancelled and taken online because of the coronavirus. Um, it's not nice, obviously. Increasing death toll and cases are skyrocketing. Yeah, a lot more people have been encouraged to go remote. And I actually went out um, for a few, yes surprise. I went out. I left the house. I went out, and the weekend, uh, the weekend, well, after the weekend that I went out, I came home and just immediately felt very, very ill. So that was a week ago. I'm still feeling it now, and uh, yeah. I don't think I have the coronavirus, but 
uh, I am paranoid. So my whole family's sick as well. So hopefully I get over that soon. And, we're, and my voice sounds even more clearer. Self-quarantine in the Barton household. Yeah, I practically do that anyway. So yeah, for me, it's just another day in the office.